It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Stuart Varney. I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, January 25th, 2024. I'm Dave Anthony. After two Trump victories, some Republicans want the party to unify now around the former president so they can focus on their biggest issue, illegal immigration. Uh, The border is my number one priority right now. Uh, We have a once in a lifetime opportunity to get something across the finish line to secure our borders. We speak with Senator Roger Marshall. I'm Chris Foster. A new report finds America's military power is not what it used to be or needs to be. We're a global power. We have global interests, trade and access to markets and all that. So we can't just walk away from it. And the fact is, our allies are even worse shape than we are. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. It's on to South Carolina. That's where the next contested primary is next month. After two Trump victories to start 2024 in Iowa and then in New Hampshire. But the head of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, tells Fox. I'm looking at the math and the path going forward, and I don't see it for Nikki Haley. I think she's run a great campaign, but I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, a Haley supporter. Fires back. The head of the Republican Party saying we don't want to hear from the, all the other Republicans in the nation because it's getting too close. That, that's nonsense. You've got to let the voters decide, not a bunch of political elites. And with a third of GOP voters in New Hampshire's primary saying they would not vote for the former president, Sununu tells Fox. Trump is going to have a huge problem in November. Guys, this is all about the general election. But many others in the Republican Party are ready to rally around former President Trump now. I think there's just really no path to victory for Nikki Haley. Senator Roger Marshall is a Republican from Kansas. I think it's time for us to get united behind Donald Trump and let him spend time, money and energy taking on the White House and making a big change in the White House. Because, boy, we desperately need it with, uh, goodness, 10 million people coming across the border illegally under Joe Biden. We desperately need a change in the White House. Now, some media coverage of what the former president said in his victory speech, that he was kind of sinister, that he was kind of a bully, saying what he said about Nikki Haley, that she, you know, her her speech that made it sound like she was declaring victory, and he you know, said, I don't get angry, I get even, and things like that. Why is it that Nikki Haley has to drop out? We've only had two contests. We have South Carolina in a month, and, and, and we have, you know, like a, a, you know, 16 contests coming up in, in early March. Why do we have to have unity now so she doesn't have to it's her it's her uh, freedom i do think that at at some point in time though we would save a lot of time money and energy if the republicans could focus all their energy on the real problem and that's in the white house now former president trump continues to have a lot of legal issues you know he has four criminal trials that are looming he's dealing with a civil defamation case in new york in court testifying this week Any of that concern you as a fellow Republican that what if something goes wrong for him legally? 
You know, my dad was a police officer for 25 years, chief of police, and he always talked about equal application of the law. Didn't care what your last name was or who your parents were, what side of the railroad track. He was going to apply the law equally. And I think when Americans see what the threat to democracy that Joe Biden is, this is one of the threats that his Justice Department does not apply the law equally. So this emboldens Donald Trump supporters. This is why he's going to have a record turnout of people showing up for that election in November, because every time this is in the news, it just motivates those voters all the more so. So this has backfired on Joe Biden and the Democrats and the, the Democrat leadership. So bring it on. This guy's an incredible fighter. Do you put no value in the allegations, Senator? I mean, not the classified documents case, 2020 election, his challenges, the Capitol riot. Do you put any any thought into the allegations or no? I think that it has been a witch hunt. I'm disgusted that the far left media only tells parts of the story. All they've got to run on uh, is really is this concept that threats that Donald Trump's the threat to democracy, but in reality, Joe Biden is the threat to democracy. Look, when you have an open border, if you don't apply the law equally, if you have lawlessness, cashless bail, 300 Americans dying every day from fentanyl poisoning, that's the true threat to democracy. We've done a couple of town halls lately, telephone town halls, thousands of Kansans on it. One was a group of senior citizens. One was young adults. Their number one concern was the border. Number two is a threat to their constitutional rights, which I find so interesting that senior citizens and young adults both agree that those are two bigger worries than the economy is. Fox News voter analysis also shows that immigration was the top issue in New Hampshire amid a record surge of illegal border crossings, prompting Republicans in Congress to block a bill providing military aid to Israel and Ukraine, demanding border policy changes be included like reigning in parole, which grants special status to some migrants, allowing them to stay in the U.S. The Senate's Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, says he is working on a compromise. No one's going to get everything they want, but we're all going to have to pull together for the good of the country. So where are they trying to get a deal done? Oh, I think we're still a long ways away. And, and by the way, I want to remind your listeners, four times I went to the Senate floor and asked Democrats to do standalone Israel funding. And every time they've shot it down. So my caucus would gladly do standalone Israel funding, no strings attached. Uh, and, and it's been a, just a pretty much skins and shirts situation there. Republicans are for it. Democrats are against it. So Israel divides their caucus. Uh, the border is my number one priority right now. Uh, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to get something across the finish line to secure our borders. Now, the irony here is if Joe Biden was serious about it, he has the power to shut the border down right now. I want to be careful we don't hamstring future presidents. So whatever legislation comes out of this, I need to read it once, twice, three times and make sure there's nothing that would hamstring future presidents and something that has a meaningful change. And what in the jumping to the quicker parole. We have not solved the parole issue. The president could give humanitarian parole to a person, but he's doing it 10 and 20,000 people at a time. So he's abusing that power is what I was. I think he's even breaking the law by doing it thousands of people at a time. So basically just ignoring what rather than calling for asylum, asylum is another two million people he's led into here on their own uh, without any type of consequences. But then another one minute, 1.7 million people he's paroled. 
Senator, I want to move on to the COVID issue, which is obviously not going away. The virus is still spreading. There are different variants all the time. And you even said in the Senate in recent days that it's become personal for you that one of your relatives has been battling long COVID, correct? Right, right. Yeah. So we all know that we, we lost a million Americans to COVID, but now we have 16 million people with long COVID. You know, I'm a physician. I've taken care of thousands of people with viruses. And it looks like there's some type of an autoimmune sequelae after this that affects people's their vascular system, uh, their veins in particular, and inflammation of the veins as well as of the nervous system that creates uh, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, inability to focus, to concentrate, can't sleep. Uh, all those things like a person that has mono, mononucleosis that never goes away. Uh, so I'm very struggled and frustrated that the NIH and CDC has not made any progress on treating long COVID. You know, they keep saying vaccines, 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 but that's probably not going to treat long COVID. I think there are solutions out there. So I'm working very hard with the NIH and doctors across America to bring that information together to see if we can give these 16 million people some hope and some relief. Now, when the virus hit 2020, you were criticized for some of your positions against masks and against vaccine mandates, some insinuating you weren't taking it seriously. Those issues, they still kind of simmer, don't they? The way that the two two different sides on COVID battle each other over policy? Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing is, despite being attacked, I think everything I said has been proven to be true. Again, I, I just relied on treating thousands of patients with virus, uh, I, I, whether it was uh, HPV or herpes or H1N1, especially pregnant patients with virus. I really thought all along that Fauci's leadership, his direction was wrong. I'll give you, a, for instance, one of the issues was this six-foot distancing. I immediately called the CDC and said, send me the study that shows any type of preference to the six-foot. They sent they sent me an article from the 1930s on tuberculosis that said a person coughing tuberculosis, that that bacterium could travel six feet. And I said, well, this virus looks nothing like tuberculosis. That's a great big relatively sized bacterium compared to this virus. I, I don't think a six foot is going to matter. I don't think the masks are going to matter, especially if you don't wear them correctly. So I think everything I said was borne out to be true. And now we have Dr. Fauci can't remember a thing he said or where his policies came from. Uh, but over and over, I asked the CDC to show me, let me read the articles that support any of this. And it was horrible. And they lied to me. Most importantly, the CDC lied to me at the very beginning of this. When I called them the middle of January and asked them about this virus in China, they led me astray. They, they had implied to the media that they had folks there in Wuhan, China. And I found out they had none, that they were all shelled up. In, in the capital of China, not letting out of their hotels. They, they lied to me. They deceived the American public. Um, it would have been a whole different story if Fauci would have been honest with President Trump and said, look, this is a man-made virus. It's going to be spread person to person. We need to shut the border down until we develop a vaccine or do what we can do. So the president was given some horrible advice by Dr. Fauci. Yeah, obviously, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci was a Trump and then Biden COVID advisor. And he's been on a lot of, lot of scrutiny over COVID origins, which you've referenced about uh, whether it was a lab leak, which is a theory that a lot of people believe, or whether it was man-made, which I mean, uh, some sort of a human, uh, rather, some sort of a natural occurrence where it found its way into humans. But he has spoken to lawmakers in private. There may be something public at some point. What do you want to press him on with COVID's origins? 
I would encourage people to go to our website, marshall.senate.gov, go to our YouTube. We did an entire timeline of, of the, the history of it. We did this, goodness, two years ago. And everything that's coming out of these interviews now and getting more freedom of information releases on emails just confirms what we're talking about. So, for instance, very recently on emails, we confirmed that EcoHealth uh, actually finished a project that putting a protein spike on the original SARS virus and adding the furin cleavage site which is what we said, you know, this is the part of the smoking gun, that those don't occur in nature exactly like this uh, COVID virus does. So I, I think that... And that allowed you know, it to be transmissible human to human. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. So the protein spike, it grabs your lung cells very easily. And then the furin cleavage site is what allows it to enter human lung cells and cause all the inflammation and the infection, which is so horrible as well. But look, if I was in front of a jury of a civil lawsuit type of thing, I really do think I could convince them that this lab, this virus was made in a laboratory in Wuhan, China and leaked. It was funded with American dollars and we're still funding research over there. Just recently, two weeks ago, I found out that they made a virus, the same type of SARS a virus that doesn't grab lung cells, it grabs brain cells. That's got to be just, it just scares me to death that we're still funding viral gain of function research. We need to shut it all down. More dangerous than nuclear warheads. But we're not going to get a direct answer out of China ever, are we on this? Oh, I don't think so. I think that they've covered up. And more importantly, they've killed all the witnesses. Uh, the people that were working on the virus and on the vaccine there for COVID in China, a lot of those people have uh, mysteriously died as well. Senator Roger Marshall, Republican from Kansas, is always good to talk to you. Thanks for being back with us. You bet, Dave. It's great to be with you. I hope I didn't drive down too deep, but it's an issue that I'm passionate about. Thanks so much. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for my brand new podcast, Perino on Politics. As we analyze the 2024 election cycle, make sure you subscribe to this series on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts and leave me a rating and review. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary coming up. Russia and Ukraine, Hamas invading Israel, Iran-backed rebels attacking ships in the region, dragging us into something that looks like war to Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville telling Fox. Well, I don't know what else you'd call it. Uh, they're shooting at us. We're shooting at them. Uh, I guess you'd call it war. Uh, I don't know any of what it put it. Who knows if or how much fighting in the Middle East will escalate. And maybe one of these days China invades Taiwan or North Korea does more than tests a missile. A new annual report finds the United States military is not as strong as it needs to be. Well, I think that we're on the alarm side at this time. We've been tracking the status of U.S. military capabilities for 10 years now. Dakota Wood is a Heritage Foundation senior fellow and editor of its Index of U.S. Military Strength. And it's been a relentless downward slide. So it's half the military is half the size it was during the Cold War. Uh, people aren't flying and driving and shooting enough to maintain competencies. And most of the equipment that our men and women are using was purchased with 1980s money and fielded in the 1990s. So it's just small, old, and unready in a very, very difficult world that you know we've all been tracking in the news headlines. That sounds suboptimal. Um, uh, the report points out <laughs> that um, for, for everything that happens in the world, pr- predictable or, or not, the condition of our military is something that we actually can control, and we're just not doing a good enough job. 
Yeah, there are things that you can't control. Like, you know, we weren't able to prevent uh, Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. We weren't able to prevent Beijing under Xi from, uh, you know, flying into Taiwan airspace or Iran's nuclear program. So there are things that are outside of your control, but you have to take into account. What we can control is how much money we spend on the military, whether we buy new equipment to replace old equipment, whether we make it a noble uh, service for uh, people to join the military. And all those things are problematic. So the one thing that we can control and we have a constitutional obligation to defend the country is the one area where we just seem to be falling off you know, the record, that we're not doing those things that secure our own future. Well, let's talk about people and talk about stuff. Recruitment continues to be a problem and one that's proving very hard, if not impossible, to remedy. Is there a way to compensate for that or reverse it? Uh, well, you know, compensating or reversing, uh, you do have to c- compete with the job market. So that's a reality. And in recognition of that, Congress voted in a little bit more than a 5% pay increase for those that are currently serving. And that's a good thing. But that's a cost then that has to be borne by the military services. So if the defense budget increase it isn't increased to account for that, then that money that you're now paying more in salaries is being taken from programs, right? So the money part is part of it. But I think there's this cultural idea of whether service to country is a noble and a desired sort of thing. And then do you have a youth population that accepts that and is able to step into that Role And right now, I mean, it's been often reported 77 percent. So three out of every four American youth cannot join the military because of substance abuse, criminal records, mental health, physical health challenges or obesity. So we've just got a problem culturally within our country that make it harder to get the people you need to join and serve in the military. And then when you do get them in the military, you know, if they're using, let's say you've got a pilot. And the airplane that they're flying is older than the pilot flying it. You know, more than half of our ships are greater than 20 years old. The, the tank that the Army uses was introduced in the early 1990s. I mean, it's 30 years old, and they don't have a plan to replace it until the year 2050. So there are just these problems across the establishment that make manning, equipping, training, and retaining your people uh, problematic. Is the military in general underfunded or wasteful, or is that just an irrelevant question that, that you know, okay, you're going to lose whatever percentage to waste anyway? Well, you know, I think it's one of those realities of life, but you just don't accept that, right? So yes, there is bloated spending, there's wasted spending, where the military is asked to do things that aren't really relevant to military power or national defense. And you're going to have some level of corruption, both in the government and in the, you know, in the manufacturing base. It's just the nature of people. But when you look at the totality from all the studies that have been done, the percentage of the budget loss to, to waste and, and, and bloated spending is a small fraction of what you actually need to be spending. And just as an example, if you compared Vietnam gear to today's gear and adjusted for inflation, a ship cost 500 percent or five, yeah, five times, so 500 percent what its Vietnam predecessor was. And so if your defense budget increases by 5 percent, Right. The cost of the thing that you're buying just because of technology and what you need it to do is 100 times more than what would normally be accounted for inflation. And our budgets just aren't accepting that. Yeah, of course, we don't operate in a vacuum either. Um, The report mentions um, the strength of our military allies, also not good, which in turn adds to our military burden. Right. 
Yeah, and, and you know, we should, as Americans, be righteously angry <laughs> that our allies, like Germany and France and England and others, aren't doing what they should be doing as well. And so we could say, well, fine, we're just going to stay at home. But we're a global power, and we have global interests and trade and access to markets and all that, so we can't just walk away from it. And, and the fact is our allies are even worse shape than we are. Uh, just a couple of years ago, Germany had no operationally deployable submarines. In the Cold War, it had 5,000 tanks. Today, it has 300 tanks, and fewer than 100 of those actually work. The Royal Navy only has 20 surface ships. And about half of those are available on any given day. Uh, you know, aircraft manufacturing has declined by something like 70 percent in France. Uh, Great Britain can only field barely one division of land power, and that composed of two brigades. And the Minister of Defense in Germany said the German military cannot defend Germany itself. So when you start looking at allies, if they were strong and capable, we wouldn't need as much military power. But when they're weak and they have small forces and their you know, populations aren't serving in uniform, then it's just incumbent upon us to take care of ourselves by fielding the capabilities we need to secure our interests. Yeah, and the report also mentions oil. Now, look, we may not be dependent on Middle Eastern oil anymore, but the global economy yeah. still is. And, you, you know, it's not in our interest. You can be isolationist about it and say, OK, we're going to we're fine. Right. We're, you know, we're energy independent. But if, the, if your allies aren't, it's not in our interest to, um, to just let that go. I mean, who in their right mind would want to get involved in another war in the Middle East? You know, I mean, it's just crazy talking. But as you say, um, we're relatively energy independent. I think we are producing more oil now than any other country in the world. It's just a weird sort of thing because we have those resources. But Japan imports, Great Britain, Spain, Italy, I mean, all of our trading partners all get oil and energy from the Middle East. So we have a vested national security and national economic interest to make sure that this energy is available to the world. Where does the report find our ability to protect against attacks here on, on U.S. soil? How much does not being in Afghanistan, for example, hurt in that regard in terms of intelligence and not being able to take out guys who might mean us harm? Yeah, so this is the thing. We had a very small number of people in Afghanistan for the few years before we you know, pulled out uh, by the Biden administration a few years ago. It was uh, advise and assist. But what it also gave us was a geographic position to, to collect intelligence on Iran, on Pakistan, on China, on some of the Central Asian republics. And when you take out your intelligence component that was part of that military presence, you're, you're basically blind. You, you can think that maybe you get something from some kind of an air-breathing you know, surveillance platform or from space, but it's nowhere near as good about being tactically on the ground. And that's just an example. You know, when you have a reduced presence in Europe, reduced presence in Africa and the Middle East, your, your awareness of the world is degraded to the point where these surprises can pop up and you find actual threats against the homeland or even inside of the homeland. You know, I mean, this is something like how 9-11 happened. So it's not interventionist. It's not world policemen. It's not us trying to get involved in everybody's affairs. We're actually securing America's interests and not have the world dictate to us you know, what our conditions are in, in, in the spaces we operate in. Does the report get into what the next hot war might be? I know this is sort of a backward-looking report and not a forward-looking report, but I mean, is, mm -hmm. is, is, is Iran going to be such a problem that it needs to be dealt with more directly and not you know, on the margins, like bombing Houthis? Yeah, you know, the, the report is a report card on the existing military. It doesn't say what will happen in the 2030s. But you can see these trends. Right now, Iran has enough 
enriched uranium at 60% that in 30 days it could have a half dozen nuclear bombs. So jumping from 60% to 90% technologically is not hard at all. It has the ability to do that. And you've had trace elements detected at 83.7. So it clearly is the case Iran is near nuclear. It has the missile capabilities to do that. If you have a nuclear-armed Iran, how much more aggressive would it be in supporting its proxies, the various terrorist elements, you know, uh, presenting an even greater threat to Israel? Does that then prompt Israel to try to attack Iran before it can get that capability, right? So this, this idea that you can deter bad behavior purely through diplomacy or economic incentives has just proven wrong, you know, time and again. And Iran is a, is a case of this, right? You also have Russia invading Ukraine for the last two years, and you've got China that's being very aggressive against Taiwan and North Korea, clearly a nuclear power that nobody wants to mess with. So it's just a very disordered world, and you have to have not just the willingness, but the capability, which is military power. And your opponents, the people you're wanting to deter, have to believe that that military power is effective and that you would actually use that if it gets to that particular level. And I think all of that has been damaged over the last uh, six or eight years. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who is not in a military or world affairs think tank, uh, it certainly seems like the world is going to become a more and not less complicated and dangerous place over the next few years. I mean, the 100-year-old borders are, are, are going down in, in some cases or could be soon. What happens if all hell just breaks loose and the Middle East escalates and Russia defeats Ukraine and China invades Taiwan? At some point, do you just have to imba- abandon some priorities and say, we can only do so much? Yeah, the vast majority of the federal budget goes to uh, non-discretionary spending. I mean, you know, required spending like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and servicing the national debt. So the larger the debt gets, the more money you, you spend on interest. And right now we're spending as much on that as we are on the defense budget, right? So these other things don't secure the country, but they are very popular. So if all these things end up going wrong, our military is half the size it was, and it would be unable to deal with that chaos. It would take a long time to build back up. And at that point, you know, the problem proceeds into, you know, into the rearview mirror and we just have to deal with that new world. So our assessment of the U.S. military has been in a weak condition means that it is very, very questionable whether or not our military would be able to prevail in one war, much less handle anything anywhere else in the world. Uh, Dakota Wood, formerly a very smart uh, United States Marine, now, uh, <laughs> now a Heritage Foundation senior research fellow, the editor and uh, originator, right, of this um, of the Heritage Foundation's in- index of U.S. military strength. Uh, Dakota, very, uh, thanks a lot. I-, I learned a lot. It was good talking to you. Absolutely. Take care. Meet the American who turned ice into gold. Frederick Tudor was born in Boston, Massachusetts on September 4th to Delia Jarvis and William Tudor. As a teenager, Tudor traveled to the Caribbean, which inspired his fantasy to turn ice into an industry. He began cutting ice blocks from ponds outside of Boston to pack onto a ship and sail it towards the Caribbean. The first shipment left for the islands on February 10th, 1806. Many in the area would criticize Tudor's business endeavor as logistical issues and the War of 1812 would ultimately send him to debtor's prison several times. However, Tudor would not be held down by his setbacks. In 1835, his partner Nathaniel Wyeth patented a horse-drawn saw that would dramatically cut the cost of cutting ice. After developing new ways to insulate ice on long voyages, 
The Tudor Ice Company expanded to Cuba and boiling American cities like New Orleans, Louisiana. In 1833, Frederick Tudor took a spectacular risk, sending a ship packed with ice across the ocean to India. The Tuscany left Boston May 7th with 180 tons of ice and arrived in Calcutta, India on September 13th with 100 tons of ice. The venture proved to be very profitable and the ice industry exploded in the years that followed, thus proving his early critics wrong. Tudor died on February 6th, 1864 at 80 years old in his Boston home. At the time of his passing, Frederick Tudor had an estimated worth of $200 million in today's money. The ice trade helped make hot climates more hospitable and introduced North American meat and produce to communities across the globe. You can go to the lifestyle section at foxnews.com to find more of these incredible stories. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha. What's on your mind? Hi, everybody. I'm Joe Concha. It was the matchup Nikki Haley has wanted from day one. No Ron DeSantis, no Vivek Ramaswamy, no Tim Scott or Mike Pence, no pretenders like Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson or Doug Burgum. Just mano a mano with Donald Trump to give New Hampshire voters a binary choice instead of splitting the pie into many pieces, which has always favored Donald Trump as far back as 2016. But as the vote tallies came in on Tuesday night, the outcome wasn't what Haley had hoped for, despite what you may be hearing from her camp and from the media. It's not even close, as a matter of fact, because when all was said and done in the Granite State, this looked more like a Tyson fight in his heavyweight heyday. Trump 54, Haley 43, that's an 11-point spread. This follows Iowa, where Nikki Haley lost by, checks notes, 32 points. So it's virtually impossible to see a road forward for Haley, Trump's one-time U.N. ambassador, to win this nomination. New Hampshire was supposed to be a launching pad to show the country that Trump could be beaten, even if that meant relying on non-Republicans who were eligible to vote in this state's primary. But as Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Rand Paul and John Kasich and Jeb and Scott Walker and DeSantis all discovered more than enough Republican voters don't even refer to themselves as Republicans anymore. It's Trump's MAGA tent now. Even if candidates like DeSantis or Haley are almost identical to Trump when it comes to taxes and crime and immigration and education and energy and trade, the results in 2016 and now so far in 2024 show that Trumpism cannot be applied to other candidates no matter how similar they may be on the issues. In the end, Donald Trump is now 2-0. He's won by double digits both times, and Nikki Haley refuses to leave. She really should, for the good of the party and ultimately the country. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.